When I was in college, uh, there was a little one-screen movie theater in downtown Mobile, Alabama, my hometown. It was called the Crescent Theater. Um, and this was like almost 15 years ago. Um, but they had recliners, and you could go in there and you could sit, and it was just incredible. It, it sat catty-cornered on Dauphin Street from this place called Picklefish, which was a pizza um, place that me and my friends used to eat at. And so one night, we decided we were going to go eat pizza at Picklefish, and then we were going to go see a movie at the Crescent. And the Crescent, at least to my knowledge, never showed Hollywood blockbuster movies. They showed these, like, offbeat, independent, foreign films. And so to this day, I can't, I don't remember what movie we saw. Um, but I do remember feeling so sophisticated and artsy that I had gone to the Crescent to watch a movie. It was like the high watermark of uh, this young dude's artsy life. Um, because as I've gotten older, I've really had to come to grips with the fact that uh, I'm not very sophisticated at all. Uh, when it comes to movies, for instance, I really love superhero movies. I like watching them. They're cookie cutter. Every one of them's the same. The good guys win and the bad guys get thrown in jail or destroyed or sent into outer space or something. I like that, though. That's a great resolution. Some of y'all are that way with Westerns. You love Western movies because the good guy wins. The outlaw is brought to justice. And I uh, hope y'all won't judge me for this one. But uh, even though I will like roll my eyes and sigh and put up a fight, I, I even enjoy romantic comedies and the chick flicks. And I love seeing the guy get the girl. Some of my favorite movies are those cheesy Hugh Grant movies from the late 90s and early 2000s, like Notting Hill. And I just cry when, man, I, we don't have to go into it. You know the plot at the end. They, it's like this, anyway. Um, I, I'm, I'm sort of an unsophisticated junk movie guy. I'm not a cinephile like Caleb. Uh, I just like a good ending. I love the happily ever after, the end. That's what I'm all about. And if you're like me, the ending to the book of Jonah is going to leave you disappointed, a little discontent, because we don't get a happily ever after or fairy tale ending. I mean, we could have. It's conceivable that the book of Jonah could have ended after chapter 3. Nineveh repents. Jonah is like the hero. He could have ridden off into the sunset, a reformed prophet, finally obedient, successful in the mission that God had given him. But that's not what happens. Instead, Jonah chapter 4 forces us to face a pouting prophet arguing with God. He's having a pity party, and he's sulking. And if you think about it, if you think about Scripture on multiple levels, that the book of Jonah tells us a historical tale. Uh, it tells us about events that actually happened. Jonah was a real person who really preached in Nineveh, and they really repented. But then the book was recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for people who were living in Jonah's day, because there was a lesson they needed to learn from his life. And then if you think about it on the bigger picture, that on July 25th, 2021, you are gathered with the people called Central Baptist Church to hear a sermon from Jonah chapter 4. You start to understand that maybe God's after something more than giving us a fairy tale ending and a wonderful denouement that ties up all the loose ends of the crazy plot. That God wants us to learn a lesson, and, and I think maybe even to ask a question. And here it is. This is the question. Do we share God's heart for the unbelieving world? 
Do we share God's heart for the unbelieving world? This morning, we're going to conclude this book, and I hope you will wrestle with the tension that it creates. And I hope you'll examine your own heart, because I don't know if we do or not, but here's what I do know. God's people are called to share his concern for an unbelieving world. And that's what I want to show you. So here we are in Jonah chapter 4. Let's read it straight through, and then we'll work through it bit by bit. We've just seen the scene where the Ninevites repent, and God relents from the calamity that he said he was going to bring upon them. And then we get chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the east of the city and sat east of it. And there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But then... God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he became faint, and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, Yeah, I've got a good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said to him, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Happily ever after the end. No, something's not quite right here. Ending on a question, a cliffhanger, where's the sequel? What are we supposed to understand? You'd be forgiven for expecting some kind of different ending than the one we just read. It's like those movies. You know the ones I'm talking about. You sit at the end of them. Was that the ending? What what did we just see here? And chapter 4 is the same way. What did we just witness the successful prophet, the man who just converted a whole city of people sitting in sackcloth and ashes, having a pity party and arguing with God? If you think about it, the major theme of this whole scene is the difference between God's mercy on Nineveh and Jonah's anger over the same. God relented from his anger toward Nineveh for their sin, but Jonah stokes the fire of his rage sits there dwelling on it, turning it over and over in his mind. Is this not what I told you was going to happen? The Hebrew scholar at University of California, Berkeley, Robert Alter, says that one of the main features of ancient Hebrew literature is repetition. 
repetition, in which the authors repeat themes and words and ideas in order to draw our attention to some aspect of the story. He says that it's unique among all the world's ancient literature. Hebrew poetry and Hebrew literature repeat. And in chapter 4, you probably notice the repetition. God has to ask Jonah twice, do you do well to be angry? Do you have a good reason to be angry? Do you feel justified in your anger? And both times, Jonah either says or implies, yes. Jonah is your picture-perfect man of righteous indignation. He burns hot over the things of God. I mean, from Jonah's perspective, God's mercy on Nineveh was a terrible miscarriage of justice. He knew all about the Ninevites. He knew their wickedness. He knew their sin inside and out. He'd heard the rumblings of their aspirations of taking over the world, and he knew that someday he was on a collision course as an Israelite with the Assyrians. He thought, God, here's your perfect chance. Punish these people for their wickedness and wipe them out. Get them off the face of the earth. In that sense, Jonah is kind of like James and John, who after Jesus walks into a Samaritan village and the people don't welcome him with open arms, they ask him in Luke 9, 54, Lord, is it now that you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's Jonah's attitude. What do you think, God? You had these people right where you wanted them. Wipe them out. It was an affront in his mind to the holiness of God and his special relationship with the people of Israel. Who are these Assyrians to get in on the blessing of divine grace? But then, of course, from our perspective, we see Jonah pouting like a small child. He's so small compared to the goodness of God. He's the anti-hero, the person we know almost immediately we don't want to be like him. He's, something's wrong with him. He's out of whack. His attitude towards the people of Nineveh is totally at odds with God. I mean, a few minutes ago, if you're reading straight through, a few days ago in the real chronology of the book, he was praising God for miraculously rescuing him from the gates of death, and now he can't stomach the idea of living in a world where people like the Ninevites get to experience God's grace. And the guy who said salvation comes from the Lord is now trying to dictate terms to God about how and who he can save. Now, Jonah 4, just taken as a whole, shows us a prophet totally out of step with the purposes of God. And in doing so, I think it really forces us to ask, how does a person, how does a prophet, how does a Christian go so wrong in the way they view the world? As we walk through this, I want to show you three factors that I think got Jonah off course. And the first one is a superficial knowledge of God. A superficial knowledge of God. I mean, Jonah's prayer in verses 2 and 3 perfectly captures what this surface-level knowledge is all about. Finally, we get the motivation behind Jonah's flight towards Tarshish in chapter 1. He says, I knew, he knew that Yahweh was a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah knew about God's propensity toward mercy and his desire to show compassion. Now, taken on its own, Jonah's statement is about as biblical and orthodox as you could get when it comes to describing God. 
In fact, there are several statements like this throughout the scriptures that talk about God's mercy and compassion and his steadfast love. But the similarities between Jonah's confession here in Jonah chapter 4 really align most with the uh, encounter that Moses has with God on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. And, and you know this one. This is uh, where God takes Moses. Moses asks to see God's glory. And God says, no, nobody can see glory and live, but I'll make you a deal. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand and pass you by so that you can glimpse my backside. And so that's what happens. Uh, God brings Moses up on Mount Sinai, and he hides him away in the cleft of the rock, and he walks past him. And as he does, the Lord opens his mouth. And in uh, Exodus 34, 5, he says, this is God's word, announcing his name. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Listen, Jonah knew God. He knew all about God. He had embodied and taken on all those truths about God that he had revealed. When you take it with the confession he made back in Jonah chapter 1 on the, the, the deck of the ship, uh, I'm a Hebrew and I trust the Lord, the God of the land and sea. Uh, we understand Jonah is a theologically orthodox Hebrew person. The commentator Leslie Allen calls him a specialist in creedal confessions. He knew all the right answers. He could describe God to a T. He could uh, illustrate his character and his nature. But despite all these doctrinal orthodox beliefs, his behavior shows us that Jonah's knowledge was totally surface level. He hadn't really let it sink into his heart who God really was. This superficial knowledge sort of reminds us that there's different kinds of knowledge of God, you know, even the demons believe that God is one and tremble. So there's different ways of knowing God. We could say it like this, that Jonah had a head knowledge. You heard that before? Jonah had a head knowledge of God's nature and character. He was filled full of facts about God. Yeah, Yahweh, you're a gracious and compassionate God, the God of land and sea, the God of covenant, the God of creation. He had head knowledge, but he lacked a heart knowledge of God's ways in the world. You know, somebody said the, the distance between heaven and hell was the 18 inches between a person's brain and their heart. That you can know a lot about God up here, but if it never makes the move down to here, it's absolutely worthless. The New Testament tells us that religious people are particularly in danger of adopting this kind of superficial knowledge. Um, Jesus interacted with the religious experts who were full of facts as a result, they, they reduce their relationship to God to like the lowest common denominator of rules and commandments and rituals. And in doing so, they ended up losing track completely of who God really was. And so Jesus had to tell them in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. In another place, he tells them, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Listen, Jonah had this kind of knowledge. Superficial, a head full of facts, doctrinally orthodox, creedal confessions, but they didn't mean a hill of beans when it came down to it. And the danger for us 
is that this superficial knowledge is the most common and easiest to come by kind of knowledge. It's accumulated slowly by being brought up in a Christian household and sitting in a Sunday school class in a church service week after week. It's like osmosis. You just soak up stuff. You sing songs that you've known all your life. You don't remember anybody ever teaching them to you. You've just always known them. They're just part of who you are. It's a knowledge that includes Bible trivia. Who is the last king of Israel? You know, stuff like that. What does that matter? It doesn't. Stuff like theological truth and ethical principles. Is it permissible for a Christian to do this or to do that? Can you really shop on an HEB on a Sunday and not break the Sabbath commandment? You know, get into the weeds on that one. That's the kind of superficial knowledge we're talking about. It's the kind of knowledge that shows up in other places. I'll give you an example. Say that your favorite actor is Brad Pitt. You go on Wikipedia, and you find out Brad Pitt's birth date, Brad Pitt's hometown, Brad Pitt's brothers and sisters, their names. You go really deep, and you find out where he lives. You start getting creepy. By all sorts of external accounts, you know a lot about Brad Pitt, but you don't know him. Same way a student can stay up all night cramming for a test, just being able to regurgitate some facts. They know some facts, but they don't know the material. See, true knowledge of God goes beyond the facts, the trivia, the doctrine, the principles, all that stuff that we mostly focus on in the church, let's be honest. And it gets right down to the heart of it. Who is God, and do you know him? Jonah had a superficial knowledge that resided up here, but he never experienced what happens when it moves down here to his heart and to his hands. His life was totally devoid of the real knowledge that the Bible commends to us, the kind of knowledge that the Apostle John talks about in 1 John 2. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So I think if you're wondering where Jonah went wrong, how did he get so far off track that God could be delighting and showing mercy to the Ninevites and Jonah could be fuming in anger? It's right here. Jonah thought he knew God, but his knowledge of God was surface level. He didn't really know God after all. But the second factor that influenced Jonah's mismatch with God's response is his self-centered view of God's grace. See, Jonah prays this prayer in, in verses 2 and 3, and God asks him a question. He runs from God again. He doesn't answer him. He just gets up and goes to the east of the city, builds a little makeshift shelter, and sits in it to wait and watch. You can almost imagine that you've been this way. You've sulked. You, hey, I'm going to, you know, I told her that this was going to blow up, but I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to watch and, and wait for it to happen. And that's exactly what Jonah was doing. Jonah was sitting in this little tent in the hills east of Nineveh, waiting for God to change his mind. For the Ninevites to go back on their repentance, to prove who they really were, that they were just making a show of it, that they weren't genuine, that they didn't really deserve God's grace, that God would come to his senses, rain down fire from heaven, and burn that city to the ground. And you can best believe Jonah was going to be there to witness it. But instead, God plays a trick on him. Or if you want to say it differently, God brings him through some uncomfortable circumstances in order to teach him a deeper truth. 
And the deeper truth came by way of an illustration or an, a life lesson. You've probably experienced these life lessons. God appointed, that's the same word that's used back in chapter 2 to talk about the whale or the big fish that comes. God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And now God appoints a gourd or a castor plant. Nobody knows what kind of plant it is, but it's some kind of plant that grows quick and has big leaves. And almost immediately, overnight, like a biblical Jack's beanstalk, this plant sprouts up, wraps itself around Jonah's makeshift shelter, and turns it into a wonderful palm tree-like paradise. He, it, the Bible, I love how it says it in some translations. He was exceedingly glad. <laughs> you know that feeling. I'm exceedingly glad. He was like overjoyed. He's rejoicing deep in his soul. He is like, God, thank you. You have shined down on me, but the next morning, this worm, a little slug or something, down at its roots, causes some weakness in the plant, and it's not able to pull up the life from its roots, and it shrivels in the Middle Eastern sun. And Jonah is distraught. On its own, the death of the plant would be terrible. But then God appointed a terrible scorching wind out of the east to blow across the desert, to blast Jonah's face with sand particles, to burn him alive. And it says that Jonah grew faint, and most people think that what they're trying to tell us is Jonah's dying of heat stroke. He's parched for thirst. He's fainting away. And in his last breath, when he's on the gates of death again, instead of crying out to God to save him, he says, go ahead, God, kill me now. What on earth? How does a person make such a 180-degree turn from praising God for his kindness to asking God for a quick death? Well, I think it shows us that Jonah's joy was totally dependent on his circumstances. When God was being faithful to Jonah, he was exceedingly glad, overwhelmed with joy. He's in the belly of a fish praising God with amazing words songs. But the second things didn't go his way, he gets back to pointing his finger at God and saying, I don't want to live in a world that you're going to run this way. I'd rather die. That's a self-centered view of grace. The view of grace that thinks God exists to make me exceedingly happy. He exists to give me all that I need for life, rather than realizing that we exist for him. It's he who made us and not we ourselves. We're here for his glory. He's not here for our happiness and joy. Apparently, Jonah evaluated the propriety of God's grace through a self-centered lens. How did it affect me? What's the payoff in my life? No, it's amazing that God over here is totally pleased to spare a city full of people. And Jonah is bitter about it. God's grace to them was like daggers in Jonah's back. How does a person interpret God's goodness to someone else as punishment on them unless they view God as their own personal God, the God who exists solely for them? Of course, Jonah would never have put it that way. But he would have said to God, are we not your treasured people? Is Israel not your chosen nation? Have you not made a covenant to last with us for 10,000 generations that you'll be God to Abraham and his offspring forever? What about, who are these people? These are Assyrians. They have no Hebrew blood. What are you doing? For Jonah, everything was interpreted through me 
and mine. But church, when God shows grace to a people, it's not because they're special, because they're worthy, because they deserve it. God shows grace to people because he wants to be seen as gracious and to be worshipped for it. Jonah's bitter. Nineveh's praising God that he spared him from his wrath. Why couldn't Jonah get in on the act? That's what we ought to do. Peter says in 1 Peter 1 that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, that's a purpose statement, why are we this? So that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Not to sit and bask in the goodness of God and just soak up all there is and worry that maybe if God starts being nice to them, he's going to forget about us. Instead, we're supposed to get caught up in the praise of God. All the angels are joined in right now, praising him for all the good he's done. Why can't we? And that's what this is about. Jonah's misguided because he has a self-centered view of God's grace. But we can't be that way. And I think in the days we're living, this is one of the most important things that we can instill in our kids and in our teenagers. We live in a world that's defined by this philosophy called expressive individualism. That's a good term to know. Expressive individualism. It's defined by uh, slogans. The author Trevin Wax, I'll share this article with you. It's pretty good. Uh, he, he defines it by these slogans. You be you, be true to yourself, and follow your heart. That is the pervasive view of our culture, that each of us is called to be you, be true to yourself, and follow your heart. And while those things may have some merit, and I don't want to say don't be you, be somebody else, that's not a good idea either. But in such a culture, the gospel message of Jesus is easily distorted to say that God exists to help us be us or to help us find our authentic self so that we can live it out. That God exists to make me me. He loves me the way I am. He wants me to be the way I am. We can use it to justify this self-centered pursuit of all that life has to offer. But that's not the truth. The gospel isn't about us. God doesn't exist to serve our self-seeking expression of our individuality. God exists for God. And until we understand that, we're always going to be trying to piece together all the events of life. We're going to worry. Why will God let them do this? Why won't he let me do this? Does he not love me? Does he not care about me? But that is the self-centered view of God's grace that led Jonah to bitterness while Nineveh rejoiced. So we can't be that way. But the final factor that caused Jonah's most misguided response to God's mercy was his undervalued view of people. I think Yahweh's question to Jonah at the very end really helps us see this. He explains why it was that he decided to relent from the disaster that he'd promised to bring and the people. He said, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as well as many animals? God puts his actions in Jonah's lap and says, you tell me, Jonah, was I right when I spared these people? You know, because Jonah is self-centered and because he's totally consumed with his definition of God's justice based on this superficial knowledge, the implication is that Jonah would say no. No, you're not right to do that. 
Jonah looks at Nineveh and he sees a bunch of wicked pagans, people caught up in idolatry and all kind of violence. And he assumed that the world would be a better place if that city full of people no longer existed. He assumed that it'd be a happier place, a more peaceful place. As far as he was concerned, these Ninevites were scum of the earth. They were subhuman. The only thing they were good for was to be blasted with fire from heaven. But Yahweh said, those wicked people matter to me. He created them. He sustained them. He made them in his image. Shouldn't he also respond in mercy when they repent of their sins? This is one of the most glorious aspects of God's beautiful character. It's it right here. Because mankind is made in God's image and likeness and is set apart as God's crowning act of creation, even our rebellion against God cannot change our inherent dignity and worth. Say it differently. There's nothing you can do that can change the fact that God loves you. He loves you. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's happened to you. God loves you. You are one of His creation. His deepest desire for you is that you would know Him. But Jonah didn't believe that. Jonah believed there were people on earth that weren't worthy of God's mercy and grace. People that didn't deserve God's generosity. People for whom repentance didn't matter. And unfortunately, Jonah's attitude is not foreign to us. Our world specializes in grouping people into these different classes of variable worth. You got your leaders and your followers, your celebrities and your normals, your elites, your proles, your citizens, whatever you want to call them. It's who we are. The world evaluates things that way. It even happens to us. We choose our friendships based on what we can get from other people, for what they bring to our lives. But you know that God's love for us doesn't finally depend on what we do for Him. That's not the way God operates. In fact, the Bible says that God shows His love for us, that even when we were sinners, Christ died for us. People are of such value to God. The Ninevites, I don't know if you know this, the Ninevites weren't the last sinners to ever live on earth, okay? They weren't the end-all, be-all to wickedness. And yet, God loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever, whoever, whatever grouping you want to find yourself in, it doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, what your life circumstances happen to be, God loved you so much that He gave His only Son, Jesus, to die for your sins. And then, before He died, when this Son walked among us, He made it His habit his habit, to do what Jonah couldn't bring himself to even think about. Jonah wants to blast people with God's holy wrath, and Jesus is entering into the brokenness of life on earth. It's like he couldn't find a broken person fast enough to show him his love. You think about it. The religious people look down their noses on sinners and tax collectors, their version of Ninevites. But Jesus was glad to be seen among them. It's like he looked for them and went to them. It's like he sought them out. 
Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he'd rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. That's my Jesus. Searching broken and wicked people out. Lepers. I'm, I'm preparing to preach through the Gospel of Mark starting this fall, so I'm pretty full of examples of this because it's everywhere you look in the first two chapters of Mark. There's Jesus showing compassion and mercy straight from the heart of God. There's a leper covered in his body with sores and burdened with all kind of social guilt and shame going everywhere he goes, announcing to the world, unclean, unclean, unclean. And yet when Jesus wants to intervene in this man's brokenness, he reaches out and touches him. talk with Samaritan women, Canaanite women. You know why? They mattered to him. They weren't his project. They weren't his assignment. From his heart, he loved them. Do we care about people like that? I mean, if they matter to God like this, shouldn't they matter to us? I mean, Luling, Texas matters to God. It's a small place. Full of lots of people, though. Every last one of them matters to God. Doesn't matter if they matter to anybody else. They may not matter to their families. They may not matter to themselves. They may not matter to their friends. They may not matter to the school. They may not matter to anybody on the face of the earth. But God loves them. They may be poor, undocumented, addicted, abused, wealthy, God help them, self-righteous, forgotten, ignored, you name it. Every last person here matters to God. They're made in his image. They matter to him. Do they matter to us? Do we share God's heart for the unbelieving world? Or are we like Jonah? Totally self-centered sitting in a makeshift shelter, watching the world turn, just waiting for all those wicked people to finally get what they deserve. A phrase that came to mind to me while I was thinking about Jonah this week was that he was the rare combination. <laughs> a doctrinally orthodox hater. And the frustrating thing is that just as the Ninevites weren't the last wicked people to ever live, Jonah wasn't the last one of his kind. And church, if, if we want to be known as a people who matter, who make a difference in the world, we want to be known as God's people in Luling, Texas, we need to be about his business. When he says, rise up and go, we don't tell him, nah, I'm not doing that. When he reveals to us our sin, we better repent because judgment's coming and it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. When he tells us that his heart beats for the unbelieving world around us, we better do our best to share his concern as quickly as possible. Or we'll stand before him and we'll be as small-minded and pitiful as Jonah. And so I want to know, will you commit this year to sharing God's heart for the world? This school year, coming up on it just a few weeks, will you share God's heart for the world? You need to think about that. Here's three things that you'd have to do if you take that challenge to heart. 
One, you'd have to commit to going deeper in your knowledge of God than you've ever gone before. And I don't mean reading more books. But when Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free, he meant you'll come to experience the life-giving words of mine when you live them out in your daily life. When you rely on God, not just from a head place, but a heart place, to know that he really does care, that he really has called you for a reason, he has gifted you, he has given you a ministry and a purpose on earth. Will you go deeper in that knowledge of God, not superficially, but for real? It means you have to give up all self-centered views of grace. You have to be able to say what we've seen. It's not about me. God doesn't exist for me. I exist for him, and I'll go wherever and do whatever he calls me to do because I'm a creature of grace, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. I want to tell somebody about it. I want to make a difference with it. I want to help other people experience the exceeding joy I've found in Christ. I mean, growing in your concern for other people. Getting outside yourself to seeing brothers and sisters people in our community who need a loving friend who's willing to tell them about the love of Jesus. Would you grow in your concern for people that way? Would you bow your head with me?